Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. Are you ready to connect? Paul Battle, welcome to the Groves Connection. Well, thank you, Dr. Groves, again, for uh, for having me. We've got to know each other a little bit over the past uh, year or so, but it's great to be here. Thank you again. Yeah, this is our, our, our first time meeting in person, and we are yeah. uh, delighted uh, to be at the AJMC uh, uh, Studios in New Jersey for this episode. So if the sound sounds better to you, it probably is. I, you know, in thinking about our relationship over the last year or two, it was only in our conversation this morning that I finally understood exactly what you and uh, <laughs> Lenovo are trying to do. But that's, yeah. uh, before we get there, I want to, yeah. I always start way back, okay? I want to start with uh, how you arrived, uh, where you are today. Sure. And I start in grade school. What was your life like growing up? <laughs> Uh, so I'll start with, I was, um, I was born overseas. I was born in the United Kingdom. Um, I moved to Pittsburgh when I was young enough to not have what would have been a Birmingham accent, um, from England. So, um, I'd argue middle-class, um, suburban kind of high school, um, and grade school, et cetera. So that's, I played sports from a very young age. And what, what kind of sports were you involved in? What kind of things did you enjoy? Uh, you name it, I would play it. Yeah, so yeah. soccer probably was my number one sport just because my parents um, being English and my father right. playing yes. um, himself. Um, and But I played baseball, tennis, I skied, I, I played roller <laughs> hockey, I played ice hockey. I think something's lost. And, you know, there, there's a system that's grown up, particularly in this yeah. country, I don't know if it's the same overseas, where, where kids start specializing in a single sport mm. uh, at a very young age. And I yeah. think that's a mistake because the generalist approach, I mean, I, I yeah. think uh, uh, gets you a lot more exposure to a lot of different things. Yeah. Were you thinking about, uh, you know, kids often... Uh, we'll say I want to be a fireman when I grow up, or a policeman, or <laughs> yeah. a doctor. What is it? Uh, did did yeah. you have any ideas in your head at that? I did. I so I grew up from a pretty young age wanting to be a physician. In the beginning, it was very much generic, right? A physician yeah. of some just any kind, right? Any sort of MD. And as time progressed, it became more specific. And part of this was uh, one of my parents' close friends growing up was uh, head of anesthesiology yeah. at UPMC. So oversaw some of probably the most renowned um, transplant, organ transplants. Her husband was a uh, general practitioner and, and they were mm. somewhat instrumental um, yeah. in trying to say, hey, this is, you know, why to get into it. Um, so I went to kind of college and then went through high school expecting to become a physician, a doctor. So, so you were studying the sciences and yes. all of those things, and was those good. boxes you have to check. And admittedly you're... was good at it, right? Math yeah, came yeah. relatively easy to me. Um, 
sciences mostly came pretty easy. I kind of understood um, pathways, et cetera. Gotcha. So that, that yeah. sort of thing kind of came pretty easy. Yeah. I was pretty good at lab work, whether it was chemistry or something else. I was, again, pretty yeah. pretty good at stuff like that. So yeah, it, it became something I, I kind of went to Penn State, quite frankly, as fully kind of headed in that direction. Now, this wasn't in uh, your family. There were no uh, physicians in your family. It was a, on exposure to the no. Southern Doc and, and, and yeah. just uh, a feeling you had that so, you wanted to go there. I grew up with Two parents who are credible, both, you know, entrepreneurial, um, both gotcha. really had their own businesses and still have their own businesses to this mm-hmm. day. Yeah, I, I grew up a little bit with that. I can kind of do whatever, uh, which is that, that's great to grow yeah, up that way that yeah. you do. You can choose what you want to do. Um, and one of the other interesting scenarios I would say I wanted to do was I definitely wanted to be on the research side of things as well. And this okay. was a high school thought, yep, right? Yep, this yep. wasn't mm-hmm. college. I, I wanted to be on the research side of things, help development treatment plans and other things for people kind of going forward. I, I didn't know what that really looked like. Right. And then I, but I knew that genetic engineering was starting to take off. Yes. Uh-huh. And so I wanted to see what kind of opportunities there were going to be from a coursework perspective to talk about genetic engineering yeah, in that scenario. Yeah. I kind of was pretty much uh, narrow on that thought and that's what I wanted to do. So talk to us about college now. How, uh, how did you make the decision? Where did yeah. you go? What did you major in? So got into a lot of schools. Penn State gave me a scholarship, um, a pretty sizable gotcha. one, and uh-huh. kind of made it an easy decision. And I did something at Penn State called biochemistry, molecular right. biology. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I actually serve on the Board of Alumni Association for Everly College of Science, which is what biochemistry huh. molecular biology is part yeah, of. Yeah. So that's kind of another plug there, I guess, if you will. Uh, but needless to say, so I went there for biochemistry molecular biology. And the reason I chose that was I spoke to a counselor at Penn State prior to actually getting there in the right. fall and said, I want to do genetic engineering. They're like, uh, we don't have that. It's like, okay, so like, tell me what I need yeah, to take yeah. to get me to that scenario. I want to uh, eventually go to medical school, but right. uh-huh. I want to get there by way of genetic engineering. I thought that was somewhat the future of right. where medicine mm-hmm. was ultimately Makes going sense. to go. Yeah. I didn't do anything specific in my first two years in research. It was after my sophomore year, though, that I did start an internship and did brain surgeries on rats. And <laughs> we were... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that sounds one. to me like it might be more difficult. Uh, so, the tiny little brain. It was a. It was a. Um, <laughs> it was a. Uh, it was a, a PhD. So it was a doctor uh, um, who was focused around what in the brain ultimately creates hunger or the antithesis. You're full, and could you tweak that? My name did not get published. Some of the work I did did, but yeah, I, yeah. Not, my name was never on there. But I immediately enjoyed the experience from a research. And now, a now well, let, me, of, let me back up back. for just a second here. So you're a sophomore in college. Correct. That's a kid, essentially. And you are uh, voluntarily going off and doing this internship. Doing, Over the summer, yeah. Doing brain surgery on rats. Yeah. I got that right. How much time did you spend doing this? Did you do dozens? Did you do... Oh, so that was... It was over the summer. It was about two and a half months, I think, is what it was. Yeah. Um, this is a long time ago, mind you. Okay. Um, so yeah, yeah. it's about two and a half months uh, every day. I mm-hmm. mean, you, I worked. And, and the, the hours of research are not kind of... You clock in at 8.30 right. and clock out at 5.30. It's... You are bound by whatever the research requires you as, as whatever... You're the timing to has to yeah, be so right. Et if you need to yeah. get there, back there to the location at three in the morning to, to kind of take a test of some description on the rat, yeah. you go and do that, right? right. That's what mm-hmm. you go and do. And then yeah. there were requirements for me to do that. I had to go in on Saturdays at 3 a.m. sometimes. Yeah, and yeah. I immediately became fascinated with where 
research and development could really take us. Um, and this was very much the education side. So they were part of University of Pittsburgh, right? Gotcha. And uh -huh. so it wasn't the other route of research, which is pharmas and biotechs that are out there now. Right. This right. was the other side of it. Mm -hmm. And then as my I got into my junior year, my pathway became a little bit more focused in a couple of places. First of all, I wanted to get into something related to children, so pediatrics in some way, shape, or form. I, I also wanted to get into oncology. So pediatric oncology, it's a challenging yes, topic, an incredibly challenge. challenging topic from an emotional perspective. Yeah. But needless to say, I felt as though there was not enough there. Now, now, something must have happened along the way. I'm interested in where the inflection point came. So you're on a track. You're very clear on what you want. Yeah. You're headed to, to, to be an MD of some kind or a DO of some kind. Yep. Uh, and, and right now you're attracted to pediatric oncology right. and you're, you're moving into your junior and senior year. Yeah. Tell us what happened after that. So you're, my senior year, take the MCATs, kind of decide, you know, I don't want to go straight to medical school. I wanted to spend a couple of years maybe doing some additional research. Right, right. Uh, so I actually applied, um, started applying jobs my senior year. But I got two that I, I was really focused on. One was Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and thought, okay, okay this is a perfect opportunity for right, me. This right. is exactly kind of the direction I'm going to go. And, and then the second opportunity I got was for colorectal cancer at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And I'm from Pittsburgh. So mm -hmm. in those times, you have to start making the financially responsible decision, unfortunately. Uh, I couldn't make the math work in Philadelphia. I couldn't gotcha. see how I would yeah. make enough money. And I chose a different path and lived at home for a couple of years and did research, cancer research in colorectal. That was instrumental in changing my career. Um, okay. And I'll explain okay. why that is. Okay. And that individual I got, kind of the lab that I worked in was an individual by the name of Dr. J. Milburn Jessup. Uh, we'll never forget him. Um, amazing individual. Mm -hmm. And he was an MD. So it was rare for MDs. Nowadays, it's very common. But in those days, it was it was a little less common for an MD to have a lab and do as much lab work as he was Correct. doing, yeah, yeah, yeah. as well as being fully staffed, on-call ER surgeon, Practicing physician. surgical oncologist, yeah, yeah. et cetera. So he was- That's an amazing feat to pull off. I mean, that's, that's and like having two full-time jobs. Is, publishing yeah. very frequently. Yeah. Um, I pitched for grant money yeah, to right, certain right. agencies. We'll call it a space agency of the United States. Yeah. Um, so I pitched to them. So it, it gave me a huge opportunity and I got published multiple times under him. So I'm nice, yeah. about seven different times. We were focused on P53 and that was, I'll leave it at that. And But we were getting into- some interesting conversations around could you target specifically cancer cells using viruses? This yeah. was kind mm -hmm. of on thought of. It wasn't yeah. hugely popular thought yeah. process. Yeah. So we we were gonna we were tagging viruses um, with UV and some other p to get into cancer cells, and again right. you could heat up a cancer cell and then it would just blow up. Yep. So um, I realized as well with talking with Dr. Jessup that the world was probably going to go towards robotic surgery. Now, at this point, LASIK was kind of barely right, out there. Yeah. Oh. Robotic surgery was, you know, some direction is going to go for a couple reasons. One is, quite frankly, computers are probably just more accurate and precise than a human being. And secondly, think about remote locations where people don't have access to right, right. gifted uh -huh. surgeons, uh -huh. and therefore, can we do it with a, yeah. a robot versus um, a human being? So, I, and now, I, and I, have to, I have to stop you here and say, yeah. if I were uh, if I were a psychiatrist, I would be diagnosing you with ADHD. It's like, <laughs> you know, first I'm in genetic code, and then now I'm on to robotic surgery. That's a, you know, that's a fairly big yeah. leap, but I get it. I get it. Yeah. You're you're fascinated with the role of insights and technology, and yeah. the, the ability of those things to transform the way 
that we we right. practice medicine or health care right. in this country. And so uh, you're going down the robotics road now. So was there somebody who directed you from that genetics yeah. to robotics? So during this time with Dr. Jessup, a couple of things. So first of all, in between my thousand surgeries I did on mice, I'm sorry, I'm offending yeah. everyone. <laughs> I did a thousand surgeries on mice um, around colorectal cancer. And yeah. ultimately the kind of the pathway between going from kind of liver to elsewhere. Anyway, but during this, I was taking computer engineering classes. Um, okay. So hardware and software design. So I started learning that side of things from a technology perspective and how it could bring it back. A little to, more ADHD coming in there. A <laughs> little bit, but more just learning. Yeah, it's more yeah. about learning and growth, kind of yeah, saying, yeah. I don't know everything. Um, I don't presume to know everything. And I need, there's other ways creatively you can get to uh, a solution. And But then, so all of a sudden... I'm kind of at the, what I would say, the peak of this. And I'm, I'm kind of like, you know what? I'm ready to maybe make, go to medical school. And then all of a sudden, Dr. Jessup gets moved from UPMC to University of Texas. And uh. at this time, he asked me to drive him down, which I thought was a bit strange at huh. the time, I'll admit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, the two of us drove and we stopped kind of once along the way between Pittsburgh and, and San Antonio. And his mentor moment, he kind of said to me, he said, look, being a doctor in this country is really hard. The marketplace isn't created necessarily to help everybody fairly. It isn't created equally for a doctor to act freely. Right. Um, there's a lot of guide rails and guardrails, if you will. Yeah, so yeah. he said to me, he's like, I think you'd be a fantastic physician, but maybe try technology. He's like, maybe you'd hmm. be better suited on that side. And he's like, you might be able to be more scalable. Think about you, what you could do as a singular person working for a technology company Versus an individual physician. Seeing patients kind of. one at a time. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe that's something you try out. So I kind of, of course, took that to heart. And about five months later, I was working with his kind of peer who was in the lab. And I got myself an interview at IBM. And next thing you know, I'm kind of driving down to Atlanta, yeah. <laughs> moving to Atlanta to work for IBM. And, and kind of everything completely changed, right? And my yeah, mindset yeah, yeah. Um, completely changed. But Dr. Jessup was definitively that time he was my mentor i didn't realize it right, uh, right. but he was my mentor that kind of chose the pathway uh, from that perspective very right? interesting do, do you ever go back and think what if i had yeah. gone on down the road to become a physician do you ever oh, yeah. wonder about that oh yeah and look it's um try having that conversation <laughs> with your parents that you got in, oh, no. that you got into medical school <laughs> you got into medical school you kind of got a scholarship yeah. um Almost could go for free. And, oh, by the way, I'm not. I'm going to go yeah, down to Atlanta yeah. and start from scratch at IBM. And it was a it's an, inter it was an interesting conversation. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll say, say that. It completely changed. And that's why I'm where I am today versus yeah, yeah. So, so, so going this down was the your, road. Your first industry job, meaning yes. the technology industry, was Correct. with IBM. Correct. And and you stayed there for a period of time. And yeah. uh, walk us through the next steps in your career yeah, to where sure. you are now. Well, first of all, the interview process was interesting with IBM. So you can imagine, visualize this, the individual looking at my resume, looking at me, looking at my resume, looking back at me and saying, what are you doing here? Because your resume <laughs> speaks like you're in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah. Um, I needed to kind of explain that, and it was—it was, uh, made sense pretty quickly why I was there. Um, I wanted—I was interested in technology. I thought I could help people. My early career at IBM was fantastic. I, again, like a sponge, learned a ton right. about technology across yeah. the board. That was the benefit to IBM. They were kind of in everything from endpoints to big mainframe servers to services to software. But there was, of course, a hankering for me 
you know, how do I get back into really focusing on the healthcare side right. of things? Because yeah. um, you were in, in, in every area. Correct. In, in every, I was yeah. generic. There was nothing. Right. I had some healthcare companies, but most of it was not. And I'd be sitting there in our call center, like six o'clock at night. Most people were either had left or were leaving. Right. And I'd be sitting there going through papers, getting published. So about three of the papers that I was published in for um, colorectal cancer got published when I was at IBM.com, nice. which was, again, a dichotomy yeah, of my yeah, brain, nice. um, thinking about uh, through... So so, so, how did you move back into yeah. healthcare? What was that true? All right. So that's more recent. So that's... Um, my wife and I lived in the UK for about seven years. Ooh, was, now, it, it, that's maybe another topic we can get to in a second, sure. differences between the healthcare... Yes. If you were there seven years, you were there long enough to use Correct. healthcare in the oh, uh, National Health Service. But 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 first, let's let's yeah. get to where... How, how did that next step happen? You were in Great Britain seven years, you moved yeah, back... So I moved back to the United States, and then I, I, IBM PC became Lenovo in 2005, and that's when I moved. Gotcha. I was living in New okay. York City at the time, covering financial com- uh, customers. Okay. Um, okay. And yeah, that, I became Lenovo. So I. So you've been with Lenovo since, since 2005. Lenovo kind of decided, hey, healthcare is not ready for you yet. Let's get you into channel. So I started building out like that side of things for several years, and then. Um, right during the pandemic, July of 2020, to be very specific, wow. I got moved into um, back into covering what we call end users, um, including healthcare. And I covered health. Now I'm covering healthcare customers and every other vertical, for that matter. Gotcha. Yeah. Now I could kind of start to turn my attention on how to leverage technology within healthcare. Now all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, I'm finally where I kind of really wanted to be. Right in the middle of a pandemic, which is yeah, uh, yeah that's an I'd interesting say is a brick wall, anything, but perhaps yeah. maybe an understatement. Um, yeah, yeah. I wanted to learn first. It's not just learning Lenovo and what we have to do with healthcare, and and that's it. It's learning what's in the marketplace that's available. I've thought about this a lot, and and uh, you know, Lenovo is not one of those names that people go to no. and associate with healthcare. In not fact, yet. Lenovo's. No. I don't know. They don't do a lot of marketing. They're sort of under the radar. And, a little bit, And yeah. so uh, when you say Lenovo and healthcare, mm. a lot of people don't really understand what you mean by that. Yeah. Now, everybody knows you serve, you know, uh, sell hardware. Yeah. yeah. I had a Lenovo laptop at Banner Health for a long time. But, uh, you know, tell us, what, how is Lenovo going to be engaged in healthcare? What, what does That's that mean? So yeah. I'll start with, I'm now currently on our, what's called our infrastructure solutions group side of the business. So that means everything from data centers to hybrid cloud to edge computing, kind of everything in between. Now, describe, define edge computing. Uh, So edge computing, okay, so it's a good question. So edge means, so you have a data center that houses in the past, right, old school methodology, houses everything, right, Um, houses all the information, and everything you want to do to analyze that information, it comes from the data center, comes from a centralized location. Well, that's kind of a little bit antiquated now. Corporations, organizations did one of two things. They they went up and out. So up is to the cloud, right? right? So up to the cloud or out to an edge, right? And like I said, sometimes both. So the point is, it's how do I put the data and the results of that data and the analytics of that data, the AI of that data, out to a place that's closer to where it's happening. Gotcha. So as opposed okay. to a hospital group having a data center and all of it has to go from the hospital back to the data center, analyze, and then go back out to the hospital again. Gotcha. Okay, now I'm with you. So so now uh, we're back to Lenovo. Yeah, so what, what do does healthcare mean to... Well, so our overarching mantra, if you will, was solving humanity's greatest problems. and okay. And that's everything from kind of improving wind farms to hunger to, of course, how do we prevent diseases, find cures for diseases? Now, the reason why we chose this as well is because we do have solutions that can specifically 
the fastest computers on the world doing AI to kind of solve cancer, right? Right, right, Um, right. And do cancer research. So that's where we kind of come into this picture a little bit on one side of it. Now, specifically to healthcare, this is where it becomes a little bit different. Two years ago, um, we partnered with Intel, and okay. mm-hmm. we, we, we said, okay, we're going to focus on the ecosystem that is healthcare. So those are the providers, the insurance companies, the pharmas, the biotechs. But now, as I mentioned, AI has absolutely taken off, and a ton of these venture capital kind of ISVs or software providers right. are coming out and creating software to do artificial intelligence around whatever you want within right. healthcare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, everything from improve, improving prior authorization to more predictable outcomes um, based upon a treatment that's simulated gotcha. to collecting data about an entire patient's record and making a better determination of what they may have, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, ER aggregation. So it could be, all right, there's a ton of input of data that comes into an ER. How does a nurse or physician get that in one location versus having to constantly go back and forth to the room. Right. So all of a sudden, that's kind of where we said, all right, we need to start exploring this and building out our ecosystem. What's also important to know is you need integrators. Hypothetically, say you need a camera or you need sensors put in some. And they all have to work together and, yeah. So you need somebody to integrate that and implement that in wherever you're trying to get it into. Right. Right. So we built that part of the ecosystem out as well. And all during the while, Lenovo took a huge step forward and we call it, our brand name is called TrueScale, T-R-U-S-C-A-L-E. And everything can be as a service. And we do that today, right? Streaming Netflix or whatever we have. Yeah. Um, now that's coming, what we're trying to bring that to the broader masses for technology. But more importantly, I see it as a value in healthcare. Um, gotcha, gotcha. And so it's bringing all these ecosystems together, bringing this possibility to say, hey, you know what? I just wanna kind of like, pay for it monthly and that's kind of how it all came together. You know, you're you're uh, making me think of something that that you know there are a lot of different ways to manage complexity, mm-hmm. and and reductionism is one of the ways to manage that complexity. And by that I mean that you tear things apart and you see what makes them work. Right. That's what right, science, right. that modern science, has done that for us. That perfect reductionism. This is how it works. You put these through these uh, few things together. Uh, but every time you do that, you also create essentially a subspecialty. You can look at it in medicine, Correct. you can yeah. look at it in data systems, yeah, yeah. you can look at it anywhere, and you've got all these subspecialties. And and uh, it, it becomes more and more difficult for those subgroups to talk yeah. to each other and get the whole big picture. Uh, and so the other way of, of managing complexity, and Brent James did some amazing work on this, is yeah. then you have to collaborate and you have to yeah. get all of those folks together right. and have them decide side on a path forward. Um, and then I think there's we're coming into a new era, and this has to do, to do with AI. Right. Uh, uh, it is designed, essentially, to manage complexity, knowledge right. management, if you will, which is beyond human capacity anymore. Even in subspecialties, the, the, uh, uh, the knowledge multiplies so rapidly that it's almost impossible to keep up. To give you a, a quick uh, view of how that's changed, in 1950, it took 50 years for medical knowledge to double. Now, I think it's something like 70 days. And so who can keep up with that? So one of the the promises of AI, as I see it, is the ability to efficiently manage all of that knowledge and route the right pieces to the right people uh, that right. are the decision makers. Is that consistent it, with what you're... It is. It is. And I'll, here's a, a pretty 
kind of alarming statistic. 90% of data is unanalyzed. 90%. So <laughs> Data rich, information poor. In businesses, uh, other businesses, it's probably not as big a deal. In healthcare, it's a huge problem. Yeah, yeah. So Now, you did a description on the way, on the drive up here of something that you had done in the retail segment. And that, yeah, correct. That, that your vision of healthcare. Let me tell you what I heard, and you tell me how far <laughs> off I am, okay? okay. Uh, what I heard was it's kind of like Geek Squad for healthcare. Uh, what you're trying to create is the opportunity for someone to be able to say, look, I've got, I want a smart room for my patients because I need that. I have to be able to be more efficient in my business and I want a smart room. And today what they might have to do is, is uh, you know, talk to a, a server company, they're talking to a camera company, they're talking to an AI right. company. And what you're saying is, look, we can help you integrate all of that and implement it uh, yes. at scale and and show you what the ROI is on that implementation. Is yeah. that kind of the notion? Totally correct. Yeah. So yeah. we started that out in, in retail. I'm not going to go into too much of the specifics there because it's not as relevant. The point is we executed it within the retail space with some ISVs, camera manufacturers, the services, et cetera. And it's everything from shrink and shrink is a term used in retail about loss, right, uh, right. whether it's by theft or by point of like um, mm-hmm. self-checkout loss. What a big issue across both the retail and healthcare is employee retention. And gotcha. so there are tools now that you can use AI. Is the person effective? Um, and are they, and if not, can we improve their effectiveness, therefore, to make maybe their job is more kind of important to them and they feel more valued, et cetera. I don't think any employee values going and changing the pricing on shelves, right, in a retail location, yeah, right? Probably so, not. Um, I, I suspect similarly in healthcare, there's a ton of administrative tasks. Right. If you could automate that or or even move to the point where it's AI, we're turning it out over to healthcare using the same kind of scenarios um, that we execute in retail to try and do the same thing in yeah. healthcare. Yeah. Um, look, I've read multiple articles in regards to employee retention within healthcare. I mean, nurse shortages, physician shortages. Burnout. Exactly, burnout. Yeah. So yeah. so these are definitive. Um, and I, th- I think it's a twofold. It's it's the pandemic took its toll on people right. uh, mentally. But in addition, the specialty, everybody's so hyper-specialized yeah, now. It, yeah. it You realize, okay, I'm really thin at this particular specialty. How can we make them more effective? Yeah. Want to be there longer and more feel more valued. So, so this brings up lots of other issues. Yeah. I mean, it, it conceptually it makes such good sense mm. uh, that uh, you know having a turnkey solution for yeah. uh, an operator of a large complex business that yeah. leverages AI optimally, that has the right instruments in the right places to deliver the information, all makes sense. You know, we've had a lot of uh, talk lately about the bias that can be built into AI systems. For example, if you if you <laughs> uh, teach yeah. a computer vision system to recognize skin cancer, but mm-hmm. you know, 90% of the patients are Caucasian, then you may have missed an opportunity to make that diagnosis in darker skins. And so if you put right. that on the market, it is going to automatically discriminate. How do we make sure right. that yeah. the AI systems are trained properly? That may not be your area of expertise, but no. that's an area that's of concern. Yeah. First, I'll start by saying it's not. It's not my area of expertise. But my opinion would be you have to feed it 
as much diverse information as possible, period. To your point, yes, if you don't have a balance in skin cancer is a great example, you're going to have a one directional outcome, which will work, by the way, on that one particular subpopulation. Yeah, yeah, sure. But how helpful it really is. You know, when I think about the the role of AI, I worry that we will remake it in our own image. And that Mm. really is the problem, isn't it? It's saying, if you remake it, for example, I'm a little bit bothered by the fact that uh, (laughs) chat GPT is trained on the internet. Have you seen some of the stuff that's out there? And, uh, you know, I I wonder if we, it's going to take effort for us to train AI in a way that makes it ethical, uh, egalitarian, you know, that, that makes it appropriate for use. And right. I think we're just starting to learn how to do that. And yeah. so there is some hesitancy uh, for broad implementation. Right. And I think there's some reason to be hesitant. But can we overcome those barriers? Is it possible oh, yeah. for Absolutely. us to Absolutely. So we that? work with several companies to properly machine learn, getting the data getting the information, right? Yes, so yes. hence the collaboration and the and kind of that data collaboration is a necessity. So we have to build that as our foundation that yeah. we can't be yeah. singular in our country and location. Look, when I was doing research, we did a lot of things in Italy, right? Yeah, we, we shouldn't yeah. be operating in a subpopulation vacuum, I'll call it. And so we, we should be making decisions for the kind of the holistic population. Gotcha. That's obviously not the only barrier. Yeah. And the other one that comes to mind, again, uh, yeah. great conversation on the way up here. You. Uh, <laughs> You mentioned that, you know, we've got all of it. And frankly, I know a lot of the technology, you know, for prior authorization, we can flip the model today to uh, clinical decision support up front and and do away with, you know, 80, 90 percent of all the hoopla. We know we can do that today, but it's not done. And and one of the reasons, I think, is because. Uh, as they say, the basics aren't in place. So so describe what you mean by the basics. Hospital mm. systems tend to have antiquated, yeah, yeah. relatively speaking, systems. And, and describe to us uh, so, that problem. So let's take a step back for a second. Let's okay. talk prior okay. authorization and why, it, in my opinion, is one of the biggest challenges we have in the U.S. at the moment with healthcare. It's ultimately the request for to do something, whether it's a scan or a treatment that's revolutionary and it's just been approved by the FDA. It's getting those kind of getting them approved by an insurance company. Company. Right, it's nothing right. kind of, that's essentially what it is. And the process that is very manual, in my opinion, incredibly manual, Yes, um, I'd argue bias, and it takes a long time. And I believe there's a sweat out scenario, meaning, okay, I know if I make you wait, you know, six weeks, you're probably going to forget about it and not want it. Uh, happened to me yeah. personally yeah. Um, yeah. in a particular thing. It sounds like a, you know, personal so, experience. <laughs> so, and, and but this is a real life scenario of it is. prior authorization yeah. and how technology, and, and what can be saved, um, you know, is mostly preventative, right? Preventative is the best medicine, right? How, how to prevent something yeah. from happening. And so some of what, you know, people want to get done is preventative and yet they don't see it that way. Yep. Because mm-hmm. it there, it just seems like, okay, here's the cost, and that's just too yeah, much at the yeah. moment. So but so prior authorization became a very, in my opinion, important place to focus AI and to try and improve. And it ultimately gives back to the fact it gives more health care to more people. Yeah, yeah. More quickly, more efficiently, more effectively. And the, the downstream effect of this benefit is, is across the board, right? The patient right. outcomes are more right. uh, effective in yeah. the grand scheme of things. We're going to be quicker. It's going to be beneficial to the hospital systems because they're getting a quick kind of response. They're able to move quickly. They're, they become ultimately more efficient. Right. And overall, it will benefit insurance companies because they're mostly doing preventative care right. as opposed to right. the incredibly costly yeah, yeah, yeah. downstream. So there's an 
an impressive amount of reasoning, but also they waste a ton of overhead on the process. Absolutely. There's it a lot is of an people. expensive process for insurance companies as so, well. So there's a there's a savings across that side. So I, I think it's a win-win-win for all of the different kind of parties if you can start to improve. I absolutely agree with that. And, I, you know, the only thing that I want to say to, to, mm-hmm. to sort of balance the scenario, and, and, and I feel compelled to, is that, yeah. uh, you know, uh, with regards to uh, physician practice, yeah. there's a lot of variability. You know, there's a huge amount of variability. And yeah. and with regards to even the quality of, like, MRI interpretation, huge amount of variability, and they can't all be right. Mm-hmm. And so having some way to help, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, this is, again, the Brent James model, to come together mm-hmm. and all of us decide together mm-hmm. what is best practice, what is... Right experimental what's no longer experimental and how do we yeah. how do we pay for it instead of the games that uh, that tend to happen in trying to right. slow uh, delivery system excess on one side and and control costs through that blunt instrument right. versus the the pushback from the other side and ultimately leading to legislation that can make things worse yeah. instead of better so I, you know it is a complex problem but AI as you point out can solve it for all of those folks yeah. and it is in the service of patients they're getting right. what they need and not more than what they need and that's why I want to you know I, I say flip the model to upfront clinical decision support right. no doctor can keep up with all the evidence and clinical decision support makes perfect sense right. uh, gosh I want it if I'm a physician I want to know how to practice at right. the top of my game yeah it, it, no absolutely to be clear about AI it's not self-guided Yes. Meaning the, the the machine is not teaching itself what to decide. Right, right. You right. have to, as you alluded to early, it's about feeding it the proper information. Right. So imagine a, a, you mentioned feeding it with scans, right? I mean, let's use a simple one like a chest X-ray. So you do a chest X-ray across the world, right? It theoretically, okay, get it from across the world. Right. Everything's diverse. Yes. So that's the first thing. But the second thing now is this: Can you incorporate cutting edge technology? and information into the machine learning. Can you start plugging in papers Mm -hmm. and things that are being done and it can read through it and understand, oh, okay, I understand what that means. How can I apply that to anything? And the answer is yes. Yeah. Absolutely it can. Now we have generative AI, chat GBT and other things. We have generative AI. It absolutely can digest and give answers based upon the kind of holistic view. So you can have that ability to learn what the cutting edge treatments are out there. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. And it could literally spit out and say, okay, this patient should, you know, look into this cutting edge treatment and here here's where it is in the cycle. It's been, it's not fully FDA approved. It's in clinical trials or it's in uh, trials at a hospital or whatever it may be, or yeah. here's your other options. It absolutely can do that if the information it's fed is yeah, now the challenge yeah. we're running now today with ChatGBT is it's unlimited. There's no <laughs> filter to it. Yes, yes, so yes. people can put in real information, but they can also put in fake information. Yes. So it's how do you make sure that the information that's being fed into the model, into the machine learning model, is real. You can bias it with incorrect information. That's happening today with ChatGBT. Right? But how do you do that? How do you make sure in a world of healthcare, how do we make sure that the information that it's it's being fed is regulated in some yeah. way, shape or form? This is such a fascinating time to to be in healthcare and a fascinating time yeah. to be in AI and technology it's in fine. general. Yeah. 
uh, and there are uh, there's no paucity of challenges. There are you know, tremendous challenges, but yeah. the opportunity is still, I think, incredibly mm. attractive. And we ought to move cautiously, but we ought to move mm. aggressively towards managing complexity with AI. Because if we don't, uh, you know, the yeah. system's going to collapse under the weight of its own complexity if we're not able to do and that. It's, we're bordering that. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're bordering that scenario where healthcare the system in the United States maybe is close to that, right? Uh, I mean, as I mentioned, employee retention, burnout, all those sorts of things are real. Um, so there isn't enough technology. So let's talk about this. There are thousands upon thousands of companies to work with in the healthcare ecosystem. I mean, right? thousands. Yes, literally. Right. Yeah. How do you prioritize, right? So it's all about, okay, it's great. We want to move quickly. Yep. How do I choose the top 20? How does Lenovo choose the top 20, right? right? And there's some criteria that we have in regards to the ability to make a difference, but how quickly can it be a difference? Gotcha. Okay. Like how much is really involved with getting it to market and doing a proof of concept, getting it proven by a healthcare organization or insurance or whoever. Prior authorization became a pretty simple check mark. Like, yes, yep. we want to go hyper aggressive after prior authorization. We're not trying to boil the ocean. Right. Uh, we do want to create a marketplace that is accessible to a lot of these providers like ISVs or IoT providers like sensors. But at the same time, we're still going to have a hyper focus on probably like a top 20 gotcha. in this area. Okay. Okay. Um, I didn't understand how yeah. much power AI uses. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're talking yeah. about the electric grid, you know, and and it's a time of environmental sensitivity. And, mm -hmm. you know, what can be... Is, is it inevitable that it's just going to, you know, I think about cryptocurrency and the massive amounts of power used to, no. to generate those trusted systems. How do we get past that? Mm -hmm. What's the next step in, yeah, in the evolution of that? Strategy? Yeah, so that's part of Lenovo's viewpoint as well, right? Um, so we made an incredibly bold statement that we are going to be net zero by 2050. Um, as a company, which is an incredibly, again, incredibly bold statement. The second thing is from an ESG perspective, environmental, we'll start with. From an environmental perspective, we are helping customers fulfill their environmental kind of um, regulations they put on themselves or their commitments right. that they have as a corporation, right? And, and so- Because hospitals are big offenders, huge absolutely. offenders. So yeah. how do I help them, right? Yeah. So- we, um, several years ago, we launched something called, and, and the brand name is called Neptune. So Neptune Warm Water Cooled. So AI is, as I, we talked about early on, is done both in a data center and at the edge. Okay, so right, let's right. talk data center first. So within a data center, there's traditional way of cooling is via fans. It's right. nothing terribly mm -hmm. more complicated than that. Um, you have raised floors, you have fanning and air kind of going through it, and it's pretty cold if you've ever gone to a data center, unless you're right behind the rack, which then there's heat coming out, but fundamentally using fans. So how do we change that? And here's also the issue. We're getting to a point where you can't cool and therefore they won't perform at their top level. So right. Warm Water Cooling was born. Neptune Warm Water Cooling is our brand name for it. And so, and this is ultimately funneling water or room temperature water through uh, the components that are mostly getting hot, which is the processor, the memory, the GPUs, et cetera. We funnel the water past it to cool it down. You're providing a heat Cause sink. Yeah, because yeah, over yeah. here is a 100 degree processor and over here is a room temperature kind gotcha. of lower and it cools it. And so it's more specificity in terms of what you're cooling and, and water makes the most sense yeah. to get to those areas. And Lenovo was just actually, we, we have a, um, 
a footprint of a supercomputer in um, in the New York tri-state area that was named the greenest, the greenest oh. supercomputer, which is now again. So that's so to your point about kind of power consumption in AI. So AIs use GPUs, require GPUs ultimately, and a, high, a lot of processing power typically. So therefore, power consumption. Right. Now we believe we can get to a point where okay, we can lower the power requirements and the from a cooling perspective. Innovations continue right yeah, throughout yeah, um, yeah. as we try to improve this, but absolutely, it's top of mind. First of all, it's good to know that there are smart people thinking about these things and creating. <laughs> to solutions. be clear, that yeah. is not me. Let's, yeah. let's get that out of the way. Um, uh, that is yeah. that is my my peers and colleagues who are incredibly um, gifted in in try, kind of really um, making this world a better place from that perspective. Yeah, um, yeah. So yes, that's not me. I don't presume to be that expert. So I've got one last uh, one last uh, topic for sure. you, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. Um, you lived in Great Britain for seven years, yeah. experienced the National Health Service. Correct. Uh, compare and contrast the yeah. system here with the system there, and what do you see as yeah. the biggest opportunities for our system, uh, given that context? Yeah, I'll tell I'll tell a story first. Um, so first of all, you, you should know. So there is yes, nationalized healthcare. You can walk into any hospital, clinic, whatever in the United Kingdom. Uh, even if you're a traveler, by the way, and you will get treated, period, right? So the, the system's built upon a financial um, tax systems with on gasoline, on cigarettes, on other things to kind of help fund it, plus, of course, income taxes. Uh, but ultimately, you can get treatment no matter what. With that said, there is private within the United Kingdom. You like say, okay, what does private do in a nationalized health system? Right, right. Example is a friend of mine, he's out doing an ATV, we can argue whether he should have been on an ATV or not. But that's another conversation for another <laughs> yeah. time. He um, unfortunately makes a turn too quickly, goes flying off of it, breaks his arm. He's in off in the no man's land in Turkey, um, uh-huh. well yeah. outside of Istanbul. Gets flown back to London, goes to the specialist to get a um, surgery, and they're like, oh, "Okay, it's going to be about you know four to six weeks to get your surgery schedule." This is gotcha. a person who's got a broken arm, probably needs he has rods. He's broken in about eight nine different places. Um, and he's, and he's got, got other issues, right? He's got to yeah. wait four to six weeks. Ooh. That's what they tell him, right? Nationalized healthcare. Yeah. You're in a waiting list, right? So there's a queue system, as the uh, Brits like to say. Yes. All of a sudden he goes, oh, he's like, oh, I work for, I'm not going to say who works for, I have private healthcare. Gotcha. Oh, which one do you have? Oh, this. Oh, okay. I, I'll schedule you next week. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So be careful about this broad-based assumption that the world is like Pollyanna over in the United yeah, Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. It is a great system. Yeah. It treats everyone. Yeah. But there are still some challenges that they have um, that we need to learn from as well, right? So there's there's a balancing act yes, um, yes. that we need to do. Now, look, I, I've not seen lately, but there's also percentages on research and development in the countries. Now, gotcha, the United yeah. States mm-hmm. is a lot bigger country, right. GDP-wise, than the United Kingdom. But comparatively, again, there's more research and development that comes out of the United States for healthcare than any other country per capita on Earth, yep. bar none. True. And is that a result of the blindingly high costs that we have? <laughs> I don't yes. know. I, I'm sure an economist could prove that, but yeah, I'm not one. Yeah. But the point of the matter is, the system is fantastic in the United Kingdom for what it needs to be done, which is treat everyone. Right. Doesn't say treat everyone well. It just says treat everyone. Make sure everybody gets treatment. So essentially. that's yeah. the balancing act that is kind of how do you get everyone treated, but everybody treated well with the best possible outcomes. Yeah, that yeah. is the balancing act between our two systems. Yeah, you know, I, 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 it is a bright future for sure if we, uh, Agreed. If we take, the right, uh, take the right paths. And, and mm-hmm. I'm excited about that. I think there's a lot to look yeah. forward to. Agreed. 
Uh, any last thoughts that you have on uh, healthcare or your career or where Lenovo's going that I'll, you'd like to get in? A couple of things. So thank you again for, for the time um, this afternoon. It was, this was fantastic. Uh, the future is bright. Healthcare future absolutely is bright. Um, I, I kind of made it seem a little doom and gloom during this maybe, but, <laughs> but the future is absolutely bright because yeah. there are a lot of intelligent people working on this problem um, that is how to really make patient outcomes. I actually have a some, I have a uh, kind of a briefing next week on on the West Coast about patient necks in this touchless patient room. The yeah, future yeah. is bright. We have to figure out a way to harness the technology that is out there to really drive towards better patient outcomes. That's what we're at Lenovo trying to do. And you can see the other parts of it. The ancillary, hey, how do we make sure we're environmentally responsible? ESG, of course, is social responsibility as yes. well. Yeah. So how do we make this all responsible? Um, so we talked a little bit about kind of health equity and so on. So how do we make sure that everyone has access to it? Imagine a touchless patient room in the middle of nowhere in a rural area where they're an hour and a half from something. Talk about my early days of doing robotic surgery and making that available to someone, again, in a rural area or in an area of the world that can't have, they don't have access right. to that. How do we get there? As I mentioned, the epiphany is this. It's not just treating everyone. It's treating everyone with the best possible outcomes. Yeah, that's yeah. where, and I know we're heading in that that's direction. That's the holy grail. That's, yep, and yep. I know we're heading in that right direction. Now it's time to harness what we have out there and accelerate. Wow. Uh, that was a tour de force of uh, technology and healthcare. I've learned so much this morning, both Ditto. on the drive up and during the session. <laughs> Ditto, so by the way. I just want to thank you so much, Paul, for being so thank generous you. with your time. I want to thank uh, AJMC for, for loaning me their studio. Uh, it's been a lot <laughs> yep. of fun. And uh, that will be it for the Groves Connection for this episode. And uh, join us next time on the Groves Connection. Paul Battle, so long. All right. Thanks again. You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going, and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Groves Connection.